Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show because we are revisiting an unheralded Coen Brothers masterpiece. I am joined by JB to talk about Hail Caesar. Would that it were. Squint against the grandeur. I would like you now, Patrick, to chuckle ruefully. <laughs> Uh, well, oh, uh, do you enjoy what's the Christopher Lambert line? Do you enjoy physical culture? It's so funny. <laughs> oh, uh, I did not put that together. That's, that's Christopher, Christopher Lambert. Yeah. Oh my God, the cameos this film has. It has two Highlanders in it. Um, it's crazy good. Um, hold on, I just lost my train of thought. Sorry, two Highlanders. That'll that'll be happening a lot during this podcast because the movie is so episodic. We're going to do this meta thing where the the podcast seems aimless and <laughs> multi-story and episodic. I, I we'll get into it, but I don't I wouldn't classify this movie as episodic. I think it has set pieces. I don't think it has episodes, but we'll get into it. Uh Jay Bones, have you seen anything good lately? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, I watched some amazing movies uh, a week ago uh, for a friend's birthday. Woo-hoo! And even though I could not personally be in the Hitler bunker, um, I watched. Can we not call it that? <laughs> you know, I have a habit of naming things that stick. <laughs> um, I watched uh, a, from across the country, uh, syncing it up and, and texting yeah. with my wife. And. Um, that was my first rewatch of Hail Caesar. And I have to say that like Saul on the road to Damascus, um, I was not originally sold on Hail Caesar. And then your birthday screening. And then I watched it again last night are slowly convincing me. Yes. As much as I hate to admit it, that you might've been right about this one. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, I had a similar reaction to uh, the Coen brothers film with Michael Stuhlbarge. A serious man. Yeah, I can never remember. I keep calling that a single man, but that's a different movie. That's the Um, Colin Firth movie. Right. That the first time I saw A Serious Man, it's sort of, in fact, I think it was with you, um, if memory serves. Uh, It was at this very strange theater and because it wasn't playing everywhere. And it sort of it sort of just left me gobsmacked, almost Mm -hmm. like the first time I saw Synecdoche, New York. And then the next time I saw uh, a serious man, it clicked. And now with Hail Caesar, it took two additional screenings. But again, you may have been right. So I recently saw that. And then I, as ashamed as I am, I had never seen Detroit Rock City. I mean, you don't need to be ashamed. I don't feel like a lot of people saw that movie. And who directed Detroit Rock City? The great Adam Rifkin. Okay. Adam Rifkin, who I continually confuse with Alan Arkush, because Alan Arkush directed Rock and Roll High School, right. except, of course, for the best sequence in the movie, which was directed by Joe Dante. <laughs> because um, in Which sequence was that? Was that I Need You Around? Well, yeah, you, that's a close runner up. The, okay. the Rock and Roll High School sequence in the gym. Oh, OK. That makes sense. Uh, Joe Dante came in for one day and there, yeah. there was a he he, you know. It's King Vidor 
directing the Over the Rainbow segment of Wizard of Oz. You knew that, right? I did know that. I read that book. And even if you didn't know that, I think watching the movie a hundred times, as most people have done, you'd sit there and you'd say, the movie suddenly slows down and ad adopts a different tone for three and a half minutes. How curious. Um, because uh, Alan Arkush does the audio commentary on If I Had a Million, which is another movie I recently saw, which you can read about because that was posted yesterday right. on the website. And check that out because all of you should see If I Had a Million. Uh, what did you think of Detroit Rock City? Um, I liked it, but as I, um, in the week that followed, I began to pester uh, Patrick with text messages that he really didn't need. And um, I kept thinking about Detroit Rock City because I have nothing else to think about. And it occurred to me that in structure, at least, it resembles a hard day's night. But when we get to the end of Hard Day's Night, Richard Lester gives us a Beatles mini concert of, I believe it's four sort of half numbers and then one full length song. And did they really think that the audience for Detroit Rock City didn't have the patience <laughs> for two extra kiss numbers. And the reason I bring this up is, and you've seen the movie a lot more than I have mm -hmm. in the final concert sequence, they tried to cram an entire kiss concert right. into one song. It's yeah. like, well, no, they don't do every single gimmick and crazy thing. And they spread it out over an evening and God knows you've seen um, kiss live uh, a lot more than I have. I, I think someone should go back and um, do a director's cut of Detroit rock city that ends with a proper kiss concert. It's fascinating because yeah, they just played Detroit rock city. They cut it all together a little bit too quickly. The editing becomes very rapid and there's this one amazing shot from inside Gene Simmons' mouth as his tongue yes. comes out. And it's like, yes. do more of that. Like, you built that whole rig, and it's literally one shot. And you had said, uh, via the texting machine, that you thought the whole movie seems rushed. That there's this pace to it where I know when I was watching it, and this was for the first time, I wanted it to slow down occasionally. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't. It's it's caffeinated. That's how Adam Rifkin tends to direct. It's a hectic breakneck pace. <laughs> did Rifkin direct The Dark Backward? He sure did. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that movie. It's a good movie. It needs a, it needs a Blu-ray release. I wish Vinegar Syndrome or something. Vinegar, Vinegar Syndrome did just put out one of his Riff Coogan movies, The Invisible Maniac in 4K, which I have yet to pick up. I'm waiting for the... Uh, halfway to Black Friday, 50% off sale. And I couldn't even wait for that sale because I believe last week I received an email and um, Vinegar Syndrome is putting out The Cat Creeps. Yeah. Which is very obscure. Yeah. And is sort of really important if you're interested in the history of Universal Monsters. And I'm so excited. I think it's the end of April. I can't wait, baby. Yeah, they have a whole new line devoted to classic films, I believe. They just announced the second title, and I don't remember what it is. I think this is one of the one positive things that COVID will bring us. Um, a lot of the studios and the boutique labels realized that physical releases were once again viable for a number of reasons that are low-hanging fruit. 
And I talked about this in a column recently that some streaming services are having a problem, Disney being the biggest one, because, of course, profits don't mean anything. It's growth <laughs> in profits. And so many people subscribe to Disney Plus. How do you keep that going or raise the number of subscribers? And Disney's solution was add boatloads of new content, but new content is more expensive. And now the other divisions of Disney, specifically the theme parks, are sort of um, supporting the streaming right. uh, platform. So what's a way of putting out content that people will buy that costs them next to nothing? Well, it's putting out your library on physical media. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope that continues because I'm, do you think I'm right in saying that COVID had something to do with the fact that suddenly we were getting more interesting new releases? Yeah. Uh, and I think, again, the jump to 4K means some new titles that maybe didn't get a Blu-ray release are getting 4K releases from boutique labels. They just announced The Nutty Professor on 4K, which I'm very excited about. Yes, in several configurations. I don't know if you saw this. Um, uh, Creepshow was just announced. Yeah. Um, think today and because it's shout factory you have a a number of options in terms of how many pins you want yeah i i'm still trying to maintain my don't upgrade policy so since i have creep show on blue i'm going to try not to upgrade to 4k well i tend to stand with our friend heath holland because i love physical media but just the other day when i was uh, on the youtube machine there was the doomsayer. There was the harbinger. Why 4K is is already done? Why 4K <laughs> is a lost form? 4K might as well be a dictaphone machine, as far as I'm. And I didn't even click on it because, um, I like 4K, and I would argue at the beginning of 4K we got uh, remasters that weren't that great. Um, I'm looking at you, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm -hmm. And now as time goes on, you can be more and more assured that if you buy it in 4K, you will see a difference, that they, they are getting better at um, upscaling those things or going back to the negative and, and doing a 4K scan. My very limited experience with 4K, because we've only had it for about a year, is that older movies look great and newer movies look too dark. Which is just true of newer movies in general. I They're can see very that, dark. But, but again, I think we had talked about this earlier and we figured out it had something to do with the platform we were watching it from. That I bought the 4K disc of Heat and thought it looked amazing. And you watched Heat in 4K, but not from a disc and thought it looked dark. Yeah, we just watched the disc of it the other day and it still looks like I'm watching it with sunglasses on. That's... Very strange. Maybe our TV um, settings are weird. We went in and tried to monkey with the TV settings, but. Always a problem. There was a guy yeah. named Joe Kane who used to put out. I don't even know if he did a, a, a disc for Blu-ray, but in the old days, he put out a DVD that you would put in your player and the DVD would walk you through calibrating it right. right. It seems like the most recent disc format, that disc should come with every television made. Although. My TV is less than a year old, and it actually has that filmmaker mode that's going to be championed. Yeah, that's helpful. 
it it defaults to that when I put a 4K disc in. Um, anyway, I only have two movies to talk about that I saw because I saw John Wick Chapter Four, which uh is probably um, it's too soon to say, but I was gonna say it's my favorite of the John Wick movies, but I love all the John Wick movies. Um, Rob reviewed it at the site and was a little more mixed on it than I was just because I think he's less, I don't want to speak for Rob, but he's a little bit less interested in sort of the world building and mythology. And he kind of likes the simplicity of the first movie. I'm all in for the world building and the mythology. Um, this movie's three hours. It's there. It's there. Good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, it is so big and epic in scale the last 45 minutes to an hour is just one sustained action sequence it's incredible i can't wait to see it i know he he had a a few quibbles and i still remember seeing the first one and what a breath of fresh air it was because it's sort of the greatest cinemax action movie ever made right (laughs) and you walk in expecting one thing and about halfway through, it just becomes, well, no, this is something I've said way too much and maybe even said on the podcast. The first time we went to Universal Studios and visited Harry Potter land, uh, we went to uh, one of the restaurants and um, it was good. And I was marveling at that. And I said, I think they they were all sitting around a conference room at Universal and someone looked, some junior executive looked up and said, what if we made the food good? <laughs> What if we did that? So again, that when John Wick, the first one begins, we think we know what we're in store for, but the filmmakers have much more ambitious goals in mind that are slowly revealed. And I've enjoyed all of those. Yeah. Um, I do have to prepare myself for a three hour John Wick movie, but given what else is at my local theater right now, um, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, the trailer for Dungeons and Dragons is a textbook of that modern snark thing you hate, where some impressive special effect will take up the screen for a few minutes, and then one of the characters will say, "Well, that happened." Which is that's the other movie that I saw, and there's a little too you much. Saw of, Dungeons I and saw Dragons? Dungeons and Dragons. So Erica needed to get a lot of work done yesterday. And I was like, well, I'll get the kids out of the house. What should we do? Let's go see Dungeons and Dragons kids. And they're both like, really? I said, yeah, I heard it was good. Um, So Rosie, of course, fell asleep for part of it. <laughs> but was into the rest of it. Charlie liked it. I liked it, too. I think it's a pleasant surprise. I didn't have much interest in it. I'm not like the biggest fantasy guy, although I would argue I'm probably more of a fantasy guy than you are. Oh, yes. Um, Everyone's more of a fantasy guy than me. (laughs) Didn't really play Dungeons and Dragons growing up, but my brother did. So I have some awareness of it. Uh, And there's a little bit too much of the like big thing joke, big thing joke. But overall, I think they find a nice balance. Um, There's some really cool practical monsters some visual effects yeah i think it. oh that makes me want to see it it found ways to surprise me throughout and again had i i went in pretty blind i saw one trailer once that was it and then i heard you know pretty positive word of mouth so 
I will say I, I went in expecting to like it and did, but I think if you go in with lowered expectations, it really is like such a pleasant surprise. I joked to Adam Risky that I liked the movie. I would have liked it 20% more if it had a new line logo at the front, because it's exactly <laughs> the kind of movie new line made in like the nineties and two thousands. Yeah. Like, well, that was way better than I expected. Um, the cast is really fun. Uh yeah, there's uh, yeah the cast made me want to see it. It's it's good. I was I was genuinely pleasantly surprised. Our latest meme in the house uh, involves Jan and Rosie at the Real Genius screening. Yeah, and here is the meme. Are you enjoying this? Yes. Do you know why they're so mad? No. <laughs> that was her review of uh ball of fire when we took her to the music box to see it because she fell asleep right and then after the movie said i liked it i had no idea what was happening (laughs) (laughs) it makes me wish i could be 10 again yeah right she again real genius she stayed up for the whole thing uh and maybe wasn't able to follow all of it but like dungeons and dragons i think she kind of went to sleep and because she wasn't super into it. But then I made a joke about potatoes after the movie and she quoted the movie directly back to me. On last week's podcast, you and Jan were talking about uh, old fashioned cable movie channels. Yeah. And here in Oxnard with our spectrum cable, they throw in a couple movie channels with no commercials and they literally play the same two or three movies on a loop. So courtesy of flicks, Mm. L-I-X. I don't know who owns Flicks or who it's affiliated with. Um, the three movies this month have been Inside Lewin Davis. Okay. And I'm continually catching the last hour. And I want to catch the first hour because the first hour is more fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, Real Genius, which I watched again, I think, two nights ago. And The Godfather Part Two. Interesting. Also, for all of our uh, listeners who get sucked into watching something on basic cable because it draws you in and it's one of those devil-owned channels that has commercials, um, I've discovered something. When one of those comes up on the guide, I can clickety-click and it'll show me the time slot. And for instance, AMC will show a two-hour movie casino on amc (laughs) and by by clickety clicking on the guide you discover that it's in a three and a half hour time slot yeah so check that out because i can't be the only one who sidled over to the office and grabbed the blu-ray and saved myself an hour by simply spinning the disc yeah I uh, I took Rosie to a trampoline park yesterday so she could work on her uh, back hands. Her trampoline skills? Yeah, well, she's very determined to do a, like a backflip. And so she got it yesterday. But uh, I was working while she was there and Bridesmaids was on TBS and it took three hours to get through Bridesmaids. Yeah, it's... um, And I think... A lot of those cable stations with commercials are still playing the game where they show the first 20 minutes virtually uninterrupted, <laughs> right. lure you in, right. and then the last half hour 
is commercials every eight minutes. So thank you for that. I, I, when I'm watching one of those, I feel like a psychological experiment. How far can this guy be pushed before he changes <laughs> the channel? How long can this guy be pushed until he figures out the scam? <laughs> um, all right, let's talk about Hail Caesar because we talked about it a little bit on this last week's show with Jan uh, because I had showed it for my birthday. And then you and I were trying to think of something to talk about this week. And because you had rewatched it that day, uh, and had been thinking about it, you said, well, I'd kind of like to talk about Hail Caesar. And thus, uh, this podcast was born. When I watched it for your birthday, suddenly, and I don't know why I ignored this, I think the first time I saw it, I was sort of absorbed by the story and not paying attention to what re- what really should have hooked me um, in the spirit of, I recently saw Empire of Light. And although I know I liked it a lot more than everyone else I know who I've talked to about it, I thought the marketing of Empire of Light was off in that I thought it was about X, but the trailer didn't emphasize enough that it's about a movie theater and the day-to-day running of a movie theater, which I find fascinating. So obviously I'm a big fan of film history and that's what hooked me during your birthday screening because I'm watching and it's like through the looking glass, the Coen brothers turn reality into fanciful stuff and then almost to thumb their nose at people who want to draw parallels they let things slip through that are real so eddie mannix is real his name was eddie mannix he was the fixer at mgm for almost 40 years And he did exactly what you see Josh Brolin doing. That was his job, to fix things. And in my um, deep dive, I discovered that Eddie Mannix and I share a birthday. Oh, nice. So there you go. (laughs) Um, I was taken with your birthday screening and last night's screening. And and this shouldn't surprise me because the Coen brothers are masters of this. I was really taken with the way the stories intersect and the way the stories reflect each other in weird ways. So there's the reality of the film, which of course is still a film, but then there's the films within the film. Right. Um, For instance, um, in what some people might say is the film's comedic highlight uh, when Hobie tries to appear in a drawing room romance um, and finds he's out of his league. Merrily we, we dance. All... Oh, and is is has Ray Fiennes ever been funnier? <laughs> he's just every single line he gets. Yeah, that, his timing um, is unbelievable. The sequence revolves around Hobie not being able to say the line would that it were, and um, and then later the punchline is they wind up changing it to another line at the end of one of the communist writer sequences with Clooney. That's the last line of the sequence. So that repeats. Um, I love how much mileage Clooney gets out of his sword and how uncomfortable it is to navigate the centurion sword when you're dealing with mid-century modern furniture. Um, Bert uh, Gurney's uh, Malibu pad is so beautiful. (laughs) Um, We just watch the movie and uh, admire the... um, the architecture of it. Also, when Hobie picks up Carlotta Valdez mm-hmm. in front of her mansion, 
Jan was staring at the screen last night and said, I've seen that house. And so she went on a website of filming locations and found the address. And she discovered. We uh, we live there. We think on Google Maps, it's one of those houses where the homeowner asks to be visually occluded. As you go down the street, it's like, what, are they taking a shower? No, no, no. They asked that to be placed there. Um, It's on a street called Whitley Terrace in the Hollywood Hills. And who else lives on Whitley Terrace? My son's girlfriend's parents. Oh, wow. That's crazy. That's where she had seen it before. And um, although we watching the film, we keep wondering how much is a set and how much is CGI, because there's a sequence where Eddie Mannix is walking around the lot with someone and it's the Spartacus set on the universal back lot, but it's been painted. So did they paint it for Hail Caesar? Right. Or is the paint job CGI or is the entire thing CGI? <laughs> I don't think the entire thing is CGI because I've no, been on I don't the even tour so many times. That's a very recognizable <clears throat> standing set. But sometimes you wonder if what they're showing you is half real and half CGI. Um, I know the first time I saw the movie when Eddie Mannix goes to the Lockheed meeting at that restaurant, uh, we thought it was a restaurant we had been to that's very famous. But upon further inspection, I think that's a set. So if you're at all interested in old Hollywood, um, Hail Caesar will tie you into a knot. And the other thing I wanted to talk about is Eddie Mannix is constantly talking about uh, Mr. Skank, who runs things from New York. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, in the movie, it's Nick, right? Mr. Skank, are you talking about? Right. Do we ever hear Mr. Skank's first name? Uh, I don't remember. Because here's where things get complicated. And the reason why my ears pricked up is because um, Nick Skank is real. Okay. And I get confused because he had a brother named Joe Skank. And they were both in the film industry. And one of the Skanks uh, actually had the role that he's portrayed as having in Oh Brother, We're Out There. He was the money man in New York who told L.B. Mayer what to do. He, he, was, he had that position. And I believe that was Nick. And then Joe Skank is even more interesting because Joe Skank was married to Norma Talmadge, who was a very big silent movie star. And Joe Skank ran her studio. And Norma Talmadge was married to Natalie Talmadge. And Natalie wanted to be an actress, but Natalie wasn't as talented as Norma. And Norma was the name. And Norma was married to Natalie. And Norma was married Norma, to Wait, Skank. Norma, Norma's married to Skank. Natalie right. is the sister? Right. You keep saying they're and married. Here's, and here's where I came in. Okay. Here's where I come in. Natalie Talmadge is married to Buster Keaton. Oh. She's Buster Keaton's first wife. Okay. And Joe Skank sets up Keaton in an independent studio where he proceeds over the course of a decade to make some of the greatest silent films ever made. And then Joe Skank sells Buster Keaton out and sells Buster Keaton's contract to MGM 
and says, you'll have your independence. And of course he didn't. And he effectively ends Buster Keaton's career. So thanks, Joe Skank. Mm. I'm did, Natalie, they... did Natalie Talmadge divorce Buster Keaton because he wouldn't talk? Well, yes and no. Um, it was not a happy marriage, though uh. they had two children, two boys. After the divorce, Natalie changed their name from Keaton to Talmadge. It was a bitter, acrimonious divorce. Keaton had a mansion that was unbelievable that originally I thought that was Carlotta Valdez's house in Hail Caesar. I'm watching the movie and I'm like, is that the Keaton mansion? And Jan looks it up and it's not. And the only reason I bring up the house is because I guess one day Buster left in a hurry because years later he gets a phone call from James Mason who has purchased the house and says, I'm not going to attempt a James Mason. <laughs> Darn it. The basement is full of film cans. Do you want to come and get them? And Keaton does. And that's the only reason we still have Keaton's films. Holy cow. Thanks, James Mason. Um, I'm wondering if the Coen brothers chose Skank just because of the way it sounded. It sounds hard scrabble and yeah. almost like a gangster. Um, another example of very interesting names, and we know the Coen brothers are into this, and it took me forever to unspool this. Thora. No, 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 not Thora. Vesely? Oh, the Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton. Who is CGI? <laughs> the funniest joke I have ever heard about the movies. I think this was on the Twitter machine. Someone posted one day that at the end of every production, Tilda Swinton puts on a wedding dress and walks into the sea. Yeah, walks back into the sea. So Tilda Swinton plays um, rival gossip columnists, although she doesn't want to be called a gossip columnist, um, that seem to be based on Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons, even though Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons weren't sisters. I'm wondering if that part is them channeling Abigail Van Buren and Ann Landers, who were advice columnists in Chicago, who famously were sisters. But in any case, one of them is named Thora. And the first time, the first two times I saw the movie, I thought the other sister was named Cecily, mm -hmm. but she's not named Cecily. She's named Thessaly. And their last name is Thacker mm -hmm. and they're sisters. So I have to think the joke here is imitating someone who has a speech impediment because we are talking about Thora and Thethely Thacker, right? you know, the Thacker Thither. <laughs> On wings as eagles. Yes. And um, I have a question for you. Okay. This movie came out in 2016? Correct. What is this film's attitude toward homosexuality? Um, I, I mean, I don't know that it has one other than that. It was the kind of thing that was sort of a secret at this point in Hollywood. Right. Thora threatens to expose, uh, George Brad Clooney, Whitlock right. Because of how he got his start. Right. Bert Gurney is clearly homosexual. Right. And 
it might just be that I'm being overly sensitive, but I'm wondering if the no Danes number is a little too broad in the joke that it's making. Uh, maybe. I mean, certainly by the end when they have crotches and yeah. faces and he's getting railroaded back and Coen forth. Brothers, is that just the Coen brothers playing with the idea that, of course, Bert Gurney has to be closeted, but that their their true sexual proclivity came out in other ways that were very obvious if you were paying attention. That's sort of how I've always taken it, that it was the kind of thing where it was like, look at how blatantly this is coded, you know? Um, yeah. And obviously, it's one of the highlights of the movie, because if anything... Just like when Carlotta and Hobie start singing in the nightclub, mm-hmm. I wish the movie had more musical numbers. I thought it would. I, I I wish it would lean into that just this much more. So I often will show this movie as the first movie every semester when I teach film history, uh, because I always want to show them something that I think will hook them but is also about movies and movie making. And I was like, well, Hail Caesar's perfect because it has a lot to say about film history, but it has, you know, fun musical numbers and all these celebrities that they will recognize every semester. They pretty much hate it. But um, this semester on the first day, one of my students had childcare issues and she brought her daughter who was maybe four or five. And I had to stop the movie at a certain point because it's a shorter class. So we can't get through an entire movie. So I lecture for a little while. I show part of the movie. Then we come back. We finish the movie. And when she came back to class the second day, she didn't have her daughter with her. And she said, my daughter was very upset because we had to stop the movie at the mermaid sequence. And she said that was her favorite part (laughs) because it's delightful. And in a way, uh, in a sort of underhanded meta way, the Coen brothers are presenting in 2016 what movies used to do all the time. There's something for everyone. Right. Um, Jan pointed out last night when we were watching it again that although Hobie is not sophisticated, she loved the fact of just how smart he is. Mm -hmm. Um, He is very intuitive and figures things out on his own. Like when he's telling Eddie, uh, look out for the extras. You never know what extras are thinking. And of course he turns out to be right because during that speech, he sort of talks about what everyone on the set does Mm -hmm. very specifically. So Hobie's not going through his cowboy pictures like Candide Right. He, they could have so easily attention. They could have so easily made him a fool. And obviously, would that it were so simple, <laughs> sort of paints him that way because he's incapable of doing what he's being asked to do. But he is very smart. He's very decent. Um, I love that when he sees the briefcase with the belt on it, he, there's no hesitation. He's he like, I'm going to follow that guy. I know exactly what to well, do. And he knows that it's the right valise because Eddie was right. having a problem right. closing it. My question watching it last night was between the Italian origami <laughs> with the pasta noodle yeah. and the wonderful display of roping uh, he shows us when he's waiting for Carlotta. 
did the actor actually learn to do that or is that cgi i wonder that every time i watch it um especially the the lasso i don't know if that's cg or not because the lasso sequence is when he's outside the house and we were studying carlotta's house last night because we fell down that rabbit hole I watched the lasso sequence over and over because I kept running it back to see the house. For what it's worth, it looks like he learned to do it. It looks like a real rope. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible. This movie should have made him a bigger star, and he kind of got launched into Han Solo, which I think hurt him more than helped him. But he's also in something else that I really, really liked. I was looking him up on IMDb, and I was surprised because I forgot that he was in it. Uh, he's in Cocaine Bear. Right, which I had forgotten, even though yeah. I saw Cocaine Bear and really, really liked it. I told you that, right? I don't know that you did. It's like a drive-in movie from the 70s. It knows exactly what it is. It's a lot of fun. A I did not love it, yeah. The film the film I'm thinking of is Blue Jasmine. Oh, gosh, I haven't seen Blue Jasmine since it opened. Well, Who is no he in Blue knows. Jasmine? <laughs> I don't remember. Okay. But... um. Another little subtle joke, because, of course, the Coen brothers films have jokes all over the place. Yes. His display of trip of trick roping with the lasso where he's just waiting for Carlotta to come out is amazing. And his driver has an expression like, I have to watch this every single time this guy's got a spare minute. And it's this amazing, delightful little display. But the, you know, if you were a limo driver for MGM back then, you would have seen it all. His lazy old moon movie is so funny. The guy playing the, you know, drunken grandpa. Gabby Hayes character. Charging into the tub uh, to get the moon. That's one quibble I have. I like the fact that that sequence shows, yeah, it's for everybody and it's broad, but it plays. I mean, Mm -hmm. this, this was designed to entertain an audience but all of the drunken jump in the horse trough thing it it detracts from hobie's musical number and and i almost wish that it wouldn't although hobie seems really proud of the reaction of the crowd although remember it's the premiere so (laughs) you're gonna what was the we i'm guessing it was uh they came together yeah it was that we saw it at the music box before it was released and it was this big deal and you couldn't hear the movie, the yeah. reaction was so loud. And then it was released and did nothing because they couldn't <laughs> exclusively show it at the music box once a week to people who were in love with everyone involved in the film. The audience reaction should have at least been a commentary track. They've had those before, like Robert Rodriguez used to do those audience reaction commentaries. Yeah, uh, so you could hear how well it played at least. I cannot remember another screening where yeah. the audience was Yeah. Um the scene, you know, every semester when I show this in class, I'm the only one laughing a lot of times and I continue to laugh at jokes that I've heard 20 times already, but the scene where Eddie Mannix Played by Josh Brolin in a performance I love, um, gets all of the religious figures around the table to talk about the depiction of the Christ. That's another highlight of the film that is so well written. It's unbelievable. 
And the punchline where Robert Picardo playing the rabbi says, oh, I have no opinion, <laughs> is so great. And I la- crack up every semester and no one is laughing with me. And my favorite line is, so God is split. Perhaps. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Something about. Um, OK, I lost the thread. The scene around the table, religion. Yeah. A lot um, of the movie is about religion. Oh, little little jokes that yeah. only you get and you're yeah. laughing in the screening and that your students are thinking you're insane. <laughs> um, I believe he's only in one scene. But Jonah Hill's performance is oh a gosh. marvel yes. of being so sure of what you're doing in terms of pauses and things and not going over the line and not being this crazy cameo. Um, every time Jonah Hill says, I'm bonded, it becomes a punchline where I'm not sure if that was meant to be a punchline because obviously the more obvious joke is all of Scarlett Johansson's sexual double entendres. But Jonah Hill is just, what what patience, man. It's uh, you, You're so sure of what you're doing. And my favorite line in that scene is, I don't remember the start of it, but it's something to the effect of if if that person were to meet the legal definition of and somebody personhood, personhood <laughs> that's the that's a line that only the Cohen brothers would write. The legal definition of personhood. When we need someone who meets the legal definition of personhood, <laughs> he's the one we use. <laughs> and I love uh... that even though it's off screen, it has what I want to be a happy ending. They wind sure. up getting married. Yes. That's terrific. Well, because Christopher Lambert is married to Ilsa Fuga. And wonders if you're into physical culture. <laughs> Do which you enjoy physical culture, Eddie Maddox? I, I know from uh, all of my reading about the era, era, era. Uh, that that was a famous euphemism. So I'm watching uh, Hail Caesar for the second time in a week. And the following occurs to me. See if you think this theory holds water. Many Coen Brothers films take us on a journey. Of course, you could say that about any film. But for instance, Hail Caesar is a journey through a very specific place. And our guide is Eddie Mannix. He's the central figure who's going to walk us through this unusual place. Mm -hmm. So we have Coen Brothers films and this doesn't apply to all their films, but I think it applies to several, where in the first type of Coen Brothers film, our guide is normal, or at least neutral, and everything going on around the guide is crazy. And I'm thinking Fargo yeah, with Marge. I'm thinking Hail Caesar with Eddie Mannix. I'm thinking a, a, a serious man with mm-hmm. Michael Stuhlbar. I'm thinking No Country for Old Men, where it's Tommy Lee Jones as the moral center of the film and everything that's going on is crazy. And I'm also thinking of Lewin Davis, that Lewin mm-hmm. Davis, um, the Lewin Davis character is sort of the straight man, but he's our in to this wider, crazy world. But then there are other Coen Brothers films where our guide is nuts our guide is abnormal our guide is not the moral center or neutral and here i'm thinking of big lebowski raising arizona and oh brother where art thou 
Yeah. And it's just sort of interesting to see the films in terms of those two structures, tropes. I don't know. Um, remind me. I think I know the answer to this. Uh, what comes first, Hail Caesar or No Country? No Country. Okay. That's what I thought because obviously that could be way off. But when I watch Hail Caesar, it seems as though the Coen brothers liked working with Josh Brolin so much. Mm -hmm. They wanted to work with him again. And I'm watching Hail Caesar and I'm thinking about Josh Brolin in No Country for Old Men and Hail Caesar. Mm -hmm. And then Josh Brolin is Thanos. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, that's range. Sure. That's range, man. Yeah. He was so good in Sicario. He's uh, he's kind of great every time he shows up in something. And remember, I grew up with his father right. in Westworld and Amityville Horror and Marcus Welby, MD, mm. on television. And no disrespect to anyone, Josh Brolin is a far better actor than his father. Yeah, James Brolin never knocked me out in anything. Uh, Amityville Horror came out in 4K and I hadn't seen it since opening night. So I blind purchased it and um, it doesn't date well. <laughs> I've still never seen it. Uh, we had uh, one of my friend's sons uh, was touring with a band uh, and they they were in L.A. for a while and they stayed with us and we watched it with him and um it sort of left him scratching his head as yeah. to why it was such a big deal. And one of the other, one of the other people who live in my condo building is from New York and continually swears that it's real and it happened. Mm. And I say this person's name, no, it's been debunked. Right. Both Jay Anson and the Klutzes, the Lutzes, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's the, <laughs> that's the National Lampoon version of it. <laughs> Both Jay Anson and the Lutzes have come forward and said, we made it up to make money. But she is unwavering. That house is haunted. Wow. Um, there was another, just all the stuff with the, with, with Baird Whitlock and the communists. Again, I'm trying to explain to my students, like this was a real thing and everyone was labeling all these screenwriters as communists. And so this movie puts forth like, well, these screenwriters are communists and Baird Whitlock's understanding of communism. Uh, Alex, what's his name? Shit. With the camera, uh, Alex Karpovsky, when he comes around with the camera, mm -hmm. just that crazy look on his face. <laughs> it's the, sort of an evil smile. My favorite communist is David Krumholtz <laughs> as the up. really angry <laughs> one who no one wants to hear from. And, um, you know, at, at this point, I wish IMDb would step it up because in IMDb, they're all just listed as communist writers. Yeah. But if you watch the film, several of them are given names. So yeah. come on, IMDb. Let's go. <laughs> we like to think we changed a few minds. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> The other thing I like, and I appreciate you bringing this up, because Clooney is sort of known for playing certain types of roles, and certainly Telemachus is a role that he might have played if he had been in Hollywood in an earlier era. 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 But what I really like about this movie, and why I'm so glad 
Clooney agreed to it, besides the fact that he loves working with the Coen brothers, is how honestly interested Baird is in what they're saying. Mm -hmm. How quickly he becomes a student of what they're saying, how he marvels at it. And when he's explaining it later to Eddie, they figured out that you can predict the future based on all of this stuff. And he's, he's just wide eyed about it. And then Mannix begins to slap him Mm -hmm. and put him in his place and tell him, no, this isn't going to happen. And this is what you're going to do. And Clooney doesn't often have to play the slap down kitten. He he right, very rarely right. plays someone who's put in his place. Um and he does it so well. Um he's he's really funny, and I've always interpreted Baird Whitlock's willingness to go along with communism is like he's an actor, he's not super bright. He's gonna just go with the last idea that he heard. Exactly. And and the key to 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 Whitlock is, well, of course I'm for the little guy. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's yeah, that's how they hook them because he <laughs> knows that will play. And just the Cohen brothers have a slightly dim view of actors in this movie, although they like Hobie, so I guess that's you know well, a, a dim view of movie stars. How's that? I think it's interesting that in the final analysis, um, Hobie is much smarter than Baird. Yeah. Um, George Clooney is so funny in every Coen Brothers movie, and I'm really glad that he hooked up with them for Oh Brother, which I really feel like kind of changed the trajectory of his career. Like, out of sight, hooked him up with Soderbergh, and that got things started, but Oh Brother was where it was like, oh, here's a guy who's willing to take chances and take risks his performance with his movie brother, star. His performance in Oh Brother is epic. And I think now, now that I'm thinking about it, I have to amend what I said before. Because in Oh Brother, he's really playing against type. That um, my favorite line of his in that is, well, I thought the leader should have a propensity for abstract thinking. <laughs> but then when they actually get in a jam... He just keeps repeating, this is a mess. We're in a tight spot. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's completely incapable of leading them. And so he's he's playing against type there. Um, his performance in Old Brother is just so amazing. He's, he's really good in... Uh, so before the movies that I showed, I do like trailers and music videos and stuff like that. And I was trying to give hints as to what they were. So the trailers were either movies about movies or they were Coen brothers movies that I feel like are kind of underrated. And they of course culminate with Barton Fink, which is a movie about movies and a Coen brothers movie. And another I'll example, show you of, the life of the mind, <laughs> another example of Barton Fink while eccentric is sort of the normal center as things literally go to hell around him. Um, so that would be the first type of movie that you were talking about. I really like Intolerable Cruelty. I know that's not pure Coen Brothers. But the one trailer that I did show that I'm determined after we rescued the reputation of Hail Caesar, uh, and everyone agrees with us that it is a masterpiece, I'm going to pivot to Burn After Reading, which I think is the next Coen Brothers movie which, that needs rediscovery. Which I need to revisit. Um I've got a question for you before we move on. Did the people who came to the Hitler bunker know nope. the films in advance? We must call it something else. No, they did not. 
Uh, your moist basement? Uh, better than Hitler bunker. Okay, you know, I'm joking. I'm not I do joking. not. <laughs> so the, here's why I bring it up. On the text machine, I had asked you what the movies were yeah. because I was planning to join you a la F this movie fest for one or two. Right. So you told me. But right. everyone else was coming in blind. Correct. Okay. That's what I did not understand. And yeah. that's the part I missed because I almost asked Jan to do a FaceTime on her phone so that I could see the pre-show entertainment. <laughs> it was uh yeah it was it was movies about movies and coen brothers movies and a little caesar's commercial and the nicole kidman amc ad and i didn't do that although because i needed to sync up my watching of the film with your watching of the film the text became trailers <laughs> little trailers um you mentioned barton fink yeah and in barton fink He's working on a Wallace Beery wrestling picture, <laughs> which, of course, doesn't exist. But what they're referring to is a movie called The Champ that was a huge hit with Wallace Beery and um, Jackie Cooper. And they later remade it with um, Ricky Schroeder and John Voight. Exactly. Yeah. And the reason I bring this up is one thing last night that had me scratching my head is when Eddie Mannix has his little meeting with all the religious leaders, it's in the Wallace Beery conference room. And all the portraits on the wall are Wallace Beery. So does that just strike them as funny or are they acknowledging that Wallace Beery movies, although he's barely remembered today, uh, made a lot of money for MGM. He was very, very popular. My guess is it's more the first than the second. I think a lot yeah. of things in this movie. I had never noticed that before. No, I haven't either. Night, um, when Because what's going on in that scene is so funny and so well written. Right. It took me three screenings to look up from the actors and say, are every one of those frame portraits <laughs> Beery? Because I think there's a lot of stuff in this movie that just strikes the Coen brothers as funny. And that's fine with me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I wish we would get a physical release. Of um, that Netflix one they did, because I haven't revisited that. What the hell was the name of it? The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Right. But I always call it Pan Shot because <laughs> um, for whatever reason, that's what our podcast on it is called. Um, and, you know, that didn't occur to me that that slipped through the cracks because Criterion has been so good about releasing stuff like The Irishman and Roma. Yeah. That. Come on, can yeah. you still know Buster Scruggs and still know Five have, Bloods? I don't have Netflix anymore. Oh, that sucks. And in time, I'm thinking Netflix. Netflix is like a bully. It's like, yeah, try <laughs> living without me. Oh no, not Netflix is not a, a bully. It's an abusive ex-spouse. Yeah, you you. Try living without me. And that's half of it. You, you see if Apple T loves loves you like I did. Right. And then when they raise their prices every six weeks, look what you made me do. <laughs> um, I didn't want to do I've, this. I've had several friends and family members offer to give me their login credentials, but I don't want to be that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to go down that road. Um, 
Jake was telling me the Chris Rock special is really good. <coughs> oh, I know. <coughs> this is why I will eventually re-up uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Apple TV. thought that was Netflix. No. Um, Jan read the book. Okay. And the book is just one of the most fascinating episodes in American history that no one has heard about. Yeah. And um, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I'm 95% sure that that's Apple TV. Oh, well, then I'm safe. It's just, how much is Netflix now? Like 15? It's got to be at least, yeah. And I think I've told the story before, but you know, I occasionally still get emails right. in the spirit of an abusive ex-spouse. Right. You know, it's been 16 weeks. <laughs> how about six ninety nine? And um friend of the site, Eric Ashverschlager, has pointed out that what they're offering me is not what I used to have. It's like lesser right. fidelity. It's not HD. And like maybe there's commercials. I don't know. He says, don't I think fall there is an it. ad supported tier now. He said, don't fall for it. That yeah. 699 is not. It's a different abusive relationship, <laughs> abusive relationship you used to have with. Um, I just look at things like Peacock and HBO. Now, yeah. HBO Fat Max and especially Shutter. And I just wish every streaming service was five bucks. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite performance in the movie? Hmm. I don't know if I this, do, so I'm asking. This, an this is a cliche question. because my first thought is they're also good, yeah. but I would say, I would say it's Ray Fiennes. Okay. Um. Obviously, there's the scene that everyone talks about that's highlight of the film, but I also love the scene where he goes in and complains to Eddie. Yeah, I like that a lot, and of course, all the stuff with his name, which is just hilarious. I always expect uh, that to be him standing on the sub at the end when when uh, Channing Tatum does his leap, but when Bert Gurney does his leap from the boat to the submarine and the suitcase full of money <laughs> falls into the water. Uh, but it's not. Apparently, it's an uncredited Dolph Lundgren. Oh. The silhouette of the guy standing. I always assume is Ray Fiennes, but it's Dolph Lundgren. I also like the mirroring of... Um... His flamboyant leap onto the sub is the exact flamboyant leap that he demonstrated during the musical. Number. To the latter, yeah, during No Dames. Um, yeah, I mean, Ray Fiennes is so good. Alden Ehrenreich is so good. I I mean, I probably have to go with Josh Brolin just because I love how sincere he is and how much he believes in movies and for as much goofing on movies as the Coen brothers are doing in this, they're not completely biting the hand that feeds them because if Josh Brolin is the sort of mouthpiece, he believes in serving the picture. Yes. And that's, and that's what's difficult. What you're saying is true. And that's what makes the Coen brothers, the artists that they are, because as I was watching last night, there's a scene at the end where Mannix doesn't know what to do. And he's in his office praying the rosary. Mm -hmm. And it is not presented with any snark or condescension. And I so appreciate that because a film that partially deals with 
the vagaries and complications of religion could quickly become this Bill Maher diatribe. Right, right. And it never does that. His his faith is never held to ridicule. Mm-hmm. And I give the film a lot of credit because that's the easy route. The one sort of joke about his faith comes at the very end where I'm always part of me wishes they would smash cut to black there, but I like the sort of more upbeat, happy ending that they give with the Michael Gambon voiceover and stuff. But when he goes to ask the priest, is it bad to do something that's easy or should I keep doing this thing? That's hard. And uh, the priest gives him advice and he kind of cuts him off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I got it. Father. (laughs) Like part of me expects it to just smash cut to black there, but I'm glad that it, it goes a little bit further. As a young man who was raised a Catholic and in fact, went to Catholic school for eight years, I have the scars to prove it. Um, I love at the beginning when the priest suggests that he's coming to confession a little too much, (laughs) a little too much, my son. (laughs) I love this movie. I think it's so, so good. Um, I'd be curious to look at my, I remember when we did our top tens of 2016, I want to say I put it at like five. And I feel like if I were to go back and look at what came out in 2015, again, this might jump up to number one. Yeah, it's the one I've revisited listen. the most. I might have to listen to that podcast again. It's probably a mistake because every uh, time I listen to one, I'm like, really? I put this on my list? Last week's podcast was delightful. But of course, I'm saying that because I, sure. I know who your guest was. You do. Uh, anything else about Hail Caesar you want to say? I don't think so. I think we covered it. Uh, uh, one more thing about old Hollywood. I don't think it's an accident that when we see Hobie's Western being made, uh, the director looks a lot like John Ford. Okay. They didn't do the eye patch. Right. Might be too on the nose. Right. But it's, it's really close. Interesting. All right. I'll have to go back and rewatch that. I don't think I know enough of what John Ford looks like. The next time... Um, we see my son's girlfriend's parents. Yes. We're going to ask them, do you remember when, do you remember back when this was filmed? Was like, mm-hmm. a, was it like a thing on the block where everyone right. knew and maybe you drove by? We're going to ask them about it. Oh, cool. All right. Well, thank you guys very much for listening. Thanks, JB, for talking about this movie that I love. Um, remember to go to fthismovie.com every day to read whatever mostly we have Tuesday. posted. Tuesday, mostly Tuesday. Tuesday is the day you want to check it out. That's the big day because, of course, you can go there now and read about If I Had a Million. Uh, read about the further adventures of our friend Johnny California as he navigates his way towards senility and the grave. <laughs> uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks, JB. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.